Hi everyone, thanks for listening to this podcast. Before we start, if you'd like to enjoy premium access to this or any of our other podcasts, as well as our in-depth articles, you need to become a member. You can enjoy a 30-day free trial by following the link in the show notes. Join our global community of listeners and readers today to stay informed and in the know about all things climate and energy. Hello and welcome to episode 50 of What Matters, the podcast that puts the clear in nuclear. I'm David Weston from Foresight Climate and Energy and joining me once again are my distinguished co-hosts, Michaela Hall from Agora Energy Vendor and Jan Rosnow of the Regulatory Assistance Project. Hi team, what have you been up to since we last met? Well, I've been reading um, Hannah Ritchie's new book um, uh, on uh, sustainability and broader issues around energy, climate, environment. Uh, I had a non-travel week, so I had time to do that. And I'm glad that we will have a chance to uh, discuss this very book today. Well, I haven't read it, <laughs> but I look forward to hearing why I should read it. And when, next time I travel, then I will do that. <laughs> Perfect. Yes. Uh, as Jan said, our guest today is Hannah Ritchie, uh, a researcher at the Oxford Martin Programme on Global Development at the University of Oxford, uh, deputy editor of Our World in Data, an online publication that uses data to chart the biggest issues facing us today, and author of a new book, Not the End of the World, How to Be the First Generation to Build a Sustainable Planet, an optimistic book looking at how the human race can achieve a sustainable world. Hannah, thank you so much for joining us on What Matters Today. Oh, it's a pleasure to be here. Could you please tell us maybe a little bit about your book, um, what it's about, uh, and why did you decide to write it? Yeah, so my book is called Not the End of the World, and it looks at seven big environmental problems. I guess the most relevant ones to this kind of podcast is um, climate and air pollution, because it's very much linked to energy. But And I also cover food, deforestation, biodiversity loss, plastics, overfishing. Um, and the key point of the book is that we face these massive environmental problems and growing environmental problems. But they're also problems I now feel we have the potential to solve. I think if you'd asked me 10 years ago whether these problems would be solvable, I would have said no. And I guess we could go into some of the reasons why I've changed my mind on that. Um, and I think one of the kind of reasons for writing the book is that I see this kind of growing trend, which I understand because I've been in that position, but this growing trend and this feeling of kind of we're doomed and there's nothing we can do about it and it's too late to solve these problems. And I think there is this growing notion that we've just made zero progress on these problems over the last few decades. And although we're very far off track from where we need to be and progress is not happening anywhere near fast enough, I think I would counter the point that we've made no progress. So I think the key there is to recognize the progress that we have made, not to you know pat ourselves on the back and say, oh yeah, this is fine, but as a momentum builder for how we can take that much further. When you are, um, may I ask something just for clarification, when you talk about that actually we made a lot of progress, you talk only about the energy and climate segment of your book, or is there also optim reason for optimism in the other segments, which seem a bit more difficult, like plastic pollution, etc.? Yeah, I mean, there's some problems where we have other problems where we've made a lot of progress. I mean, air pollution is a key one where, you know, we solved the ozone layer problem. We basically solved the acid rain problem. Um, and in many rich countries in particular, we've seen massive drops in local air pollution, even though globally, we, you know, we still have 7 million premature deaths every year. So it's still a massive, massive problem, but it's one where we've made progress. On foods, again, like we've made a lot of progress there 
you know, if you go back 50 years, there was kind of predictions that we'd be hitting massive, massive famines uh, within a few decades, and that hasn't happened. Um, and then for problems such as deforestation, again, there's a mixed story. It's not that it's solved and it's still a massive issue, but we have made progress globally um, and in particular regions as well. So it's a, it's a bit of a mixed picture. I guess I guess on all of these problems, there are reasons to believe that we are making progress. It's just how we accelerate that. Hannah, I think the first time I came across you was when I was looking for some data on perhaps it was the amount of electricity from renewables uh, in different countries around the world. And I was looking for a good data source. This is a few years back now. And I came across our world in data and I came across you know, your activity on social media. Um, perhaps you could sort of um, almost start um, with the beginning, you know, what what actually got you into this whole thing of looking at data, tracking it, uh, and and presenting it in an accessible way? I mean, for for our listeners who haven't looked at our world and data, it's a whole you know, treasure trove of of great data on a whole variety of these issues, and it's being used by lots of people from across the entire spectrum of the energy debate. It's not just being used by people who are kind of pro renewables. You actually see some of the graphs being used exactly by the opposing side. Um, maybe we can get into that a bit later, you know, how the data is actually being used and, and the, response, the responses that you're getting, Hannah. But could you sort of take us back to what actually sparked your interest in, in, in this project of collecting the data and present, presenting it? Um, that will be, I think, fascinating for us to hear. Yeah. So my, I mean, my background is not data science. My background is very much environmental science and climate science. And that's the background that I was coming from. I don't think I ever saw that I would end up in this position where basically most of what I do is writing about data. But I think there are a couple of individuals that kind of sparked my interest and in how effective it can be to try to tell stories through data. Now, the first one of those is a guy called Hans Rosling. And he was a Swedish, uh, like first a physician, but then a kind of statistician. And he, he'd give these like amazing TED Talks where he'd stand up and show how the world had changed over like the last few centuries. And, you know, kind of as like, not necessarily a trick, because it's not a trick, but, you know, as kind of a, uh, like what he's known for is like often he would turn your like preconceptions upside down because many of the things that you were assuming were getting worse and worse and worse. When you actually step back to look at the data, it tells a really, really different story. So he was one person that really inspired me on, okay, like by using data, you can actually understand the world in a much better way. And if you can do that effectively, you can convince others. And then another guy specifically in the energy space was was David Mackay. So his book, Sustainable Energy Without the Hot Air. Now, looking back on it, it's now very outdated. And I think there's like several conclusions that I would disagree with now. But I think at the time, it was this kind of unique way of looking at how do you build sustainable energy and how do you look at it from a data perspective rather than just, you know, feels or emotions or anecdotes? Um, so I think these two individuals played a really key role in me, like becoming interested in how you tell stories through data and understand problems through data. And yeah, that's what I do at, at our Rodin Data now. We are a, a kind of a, a team um, of kind of, I, I kind of call us kind of misfit academics. So we're a team, like I'm based at the University of Oxford and we have a few re researchers on the team and that's, that's our roles. But we're also working together with like data scientists and, you know, web developers. Like a key part of our project is not just, you know, looking at the data uh, and understanding it, but presenting it in a really accessible way for everyone else. And that's like a really, um, what the kind of team aspect to that is really, really crucial in bringing together 
different skills and we do that across like energy environment uh climate but also uh poverty inequality health and i mean the key part of that is that all of these uh these are all massive global problems but they often are linked together and you can use data to understand the bigger picture i just have to say our world in data for me really is one of the great past time when I cannot fall asleep websites, you know, when I don't want to waste the time. It's still like, I remember basically I got really hooked on it, not with energy data, but actually with the COVID pandemic when we were all stuck at home and I always looked for all the, you know, <laughs> the countries. Um, and I think, um, I think it's for many, many people. It is, it is the same, but um, can you, can you maybe, um, I don't know. Do you have an episode or something or something that showcases that really with this website and its accessibility, you actually could influence a discussion in, I don't know, in a certain national debate or on, on one key item just to, to illustrate better? Because I think uh, it's also regularly read by all the big newspapers, etc. Maybe you have one topic where you actually can say, yeah, we made a difference with it. I mean, I think COVID was a very good example of that, where we were basically trying to understand and present all of global data for every country in the world, for every metric, every day. And we did that for basically two years straight. And actually, we're still updating the COVID data to date. Um, and I think we became, kind of became this kind of go-to platform for like, how do you track the the pandemic? And I'm, I think it's very hard to directly attribute um, we put this chart online and therefore there was this major policy decision. I think that's not necessarily how policy making works. But I think, yeah, there's loads of examples where we, we speak to policymakers and they're, they're looking at this stuff all the time. So my, where they might not directly attribute a specific decision to that, that's in the back of their head and that's the kind of information diet that they're getting when they're, they're forming policies. But yeah, we're used by, by policymakers, by journalists, by researchers. Like I think a key thing for us... Um, in this is that I think our we don't really do original research, right? And we're entirely dependent on other amazing researchers and data providers putting this stuff online. It's then how we translate that and make it accessible. But what we also want to do, especially for for researchers, is to not have them waste time constantly like digging through spreadsheets so then they can make the chart. I mean, you've got thousands or millions of, of researchers across the world that are all duplicating the same stuff over and over and over. But if we can provide a resource where they just go there, they can find the data, and then they can actually get on with pushing the research forward rather than redoing it, then I think in that domain, we're also providing a service. So the key part of our world in data and with your new book is based in the data and the, the, the knowledge that's come with that. Why do you think data is so important in some of these challenges that we're facing today? I think there are a few reasons. I think one, you just need data to be able to like fundamentally understand the problem, the nature of the problem, where the problem is. So if you just take the, the like obvious example of like climate and energy, to understand that problem, you need to know where are where are emissions coming from in the world. And again, that gets complicated because then there's this question of, you know, whose responsibility is it? Should be you be looking at country emissions? Should be you be looking at historical responsibility? Should be you looking at per person emissions? Should be looking at trade adjusted emissions? So on the, all of that, we try to provide all of these different metrics so people can then have debates around these metrics and come to some decision about how, you know, responsibility should be allocated uh, beyond the country level. Yet you need data to understand what sectors are emissions coming from? So you're not putting all of your energy on a tiny, tiny slice of the pie. 
And I think without stepping back to look at the data, most people just don't have a good sense of what that looks like. We don't have a good sense of where emissions are coming from and how that might vary from country to country. And then I think the other key role of data there is tracking how we're going. Like, are we making progress? How fast are we making progress? Um, and also the rate of change within those curves is really, really important. Like I think as we make it onto, I think some of the reasons people are maybe a bit too pessimistic about these trends is that they assume that they're linear or they look at historical progress and assume that that will continue to be the rate that we progress. Hannah, um, there is another book which was written, I think, about 20 years ago by someone from a fairly different place, um, by Björn Lomborg. And he's, he's doing something quite similar, isn't he? I mean, he's looking at sort of global data on a range of sustainability issues. But his main message is, um, if, if, I, if I'm allowed to simplify what he's saying, is, is that basically, don't worry about it. You know, um, everything is fine. We don't need any, any significant policies. We don't need any significant intervention here. Um, and, and he's still, kind of, you know, he's still on that message basically when you look at his more recent writings um, but you come out actually with a very different conclusion you know having having read most of your book now um, you, you're suggesting that change is possible and it's primarily uh, change that we need more of that needs to be supported then also by appropriate government policy uh, by the right incentives could you talk a little bit more about you know what you see as the role for governments um, policymakers I know your book is not about politics, but you know, you're sort of tracking some of the, the progress we have seen uh, in the energy space. Um, and you also comment on that much of this is actually driven by the right policy framework. So could you just maybe talk a little bit about where you stand on this matter of policy intervention? Because that's, you know, this podcast's main interest is really you know, energy policy and how it affects the transition. Yeah, no, I think I think there are a few people that bought my book thinking it was similar to Bon Lomborg's book. And actually, they gave me one-star reviews because our, our messages diverge quite quickly. Um, I mean, I think I think, I think think Lomborg's message would be, or what seems to come from Lomborg's message is just, we should just put lots into R&D and I'm sure we'll find solutions eventually. Whereas I'm like, we've got loads of really good solutions now. Let's build them as quickly as we can. But where um, I think government policy is really crucial, I mean, there are a range of, 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 of examples there. Like, I think if you're looking at some of the technologies where they've made really massive progress and are now really competitive today, like solar or wind or even batteries, most of this started with an initial shove from governments, uh, usually through the form of support or subsidization. Um, and I think that was really crucial. I think now many of these technologies are in some sense rolling on their own. Like I think solar could like largely roll on its own just because it's so cheap. Uh, I think it's really hard to not to stop people from building solar. But initially, if you go back a few decades, that was really far from the case. And it really needed this very strong government support. Uh, like a few examples there, like Germany played a really crucial role in this. I think Spain also played a really crucial role. You see really strong support in China um, at the moment for many of these technologies. So I think very, very early on, when these technologies are expensive, you just you, you just do need really strong government support. Now, the hope is that they eventually get to the stage where that support can be removed or at least uh, massively reduced, but you do need this initial shove. And I mean, there are some some transition technologies today where we still need government support. Like I think upfront costs for EVs, upfront costs for heat pumps. I think without government support, it's really, really hard to see how this transition would move quickly. I think we're now at this stage with many of these 
technologies and actually just the the, the other co-benefits of moving away from fossil fuels where this transition would happen anyway. It's just the time scale is really, really crucial. It might happen over 100 years, but we don't have 100 years. So the role of government support is to, to really accelerate that um, and move that timeline much further forward. Yeah, that's a really good point. And I mean, I often get commentators who say, oh, you just leave it to the market and it will be fine. And and I think your point about timescales is right. If you want to meet those climate goals, you just have to accelerate and you, you can't rely just on the market to deliver this because the, the pace of change is just not fast enough. Um, I, I had one, one follow-up uh, question. I think you say, or you said earlier in this conversation that uh, you now have a lot more hope than you had a decade ago, um, when, especially when it comes to energy. Uh, and you, I think you already alluded to the f falling costs of solar, but could you maybe um, go a little bit deeper on, on that particular point? So sort of what has changed you know, so for, for you to be sort of somewhat skeptical, to be quite hopeful that this can actually be um, a project that we can achieve? Yeah, I mean, I think the I think the falling costs of low carbon technologies has been really crucial. I think if you were looking back ten or fifteen years ago, you know, they just were not cost competitive whatsoever with fossil fuels. And I think the the challenge there is that then you were completely relying on countries kind of almost making this self sacrifice um, for. Uh, the climate and, and future generations. And even though you might argue that's the right moral choice, that was never going to be the choice that they would make. I think it would be even very difficult for rich countries to do that and get political support for that. But especially mid and low income countries where their priority is lifting billions of people out of energy poverty and they were never going to go for the expensive low carbon option. I think just the plummeting costs of these technologies has completely transformed that where there's no longer, like I no, I no longer frame the energy transition as a sacrifice. It's actually more of an opportunity than it is a sacrifice. And I think there are other big reasons why my perspective has shifted is I think, I mean, just 10 years ago, I just didn't really have a good understanding of the energy system and the, the, the energy system that we've built. And you only need to look at a Sankey diagram of an energy system today to see, wow, there's like so much low hanging fruit here. We're really what we're doing with the energy transition is moving from a really, really inefficient and in some sense rubbish energy system to a much more efficient one where most of the energy we're using actually goes towards serving people and giving them the energy they need rather than being completely wasted. So I think that like there are a couple of, of reasons there why I think I think I think even even for people that don't necessarily care that much about climate, there are still now massive reasons to go for the energy transition. Like not everyone cares about climate, but people in general don't like waste. Uh, so you can almost sell the energy transition as getting rid of all the waste and all the money that people are basically wasting um, for stuff that doesn't actually give them energy services at the end of the chain. I'm glad we have you here with your optimism because you should come to Brussels because actually in Brussels at the moment, you know, things are shaping up for the elections. And uh, the general feeling is um, defending that the, 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 the EU Green Deal has to continue and the climate change policies have to continue and even accelerate in some areas will be a hard sell. And you just said, well, it makes a lot of sense. Um, and then I just wanted to quote, uh, I think it was the co-leader of the Green Group in the European Parliament who said, yeah, everyone loves to go along until it costs money. And I, I'm, and I would say a lot 
makes sense economically, like you just said, do less waste. But I think there are also some areas where the business case is really harder to see, like nature protection. And these were the files that there was a lot of controversy. Um, what would be your message uh, to, uh, with regard to this part of the story? Um, and do you also have data that could help make that case? Yeah, I mean, I should say that, and I think probably this people probably also get this from the book, that I think I'm more optimistic on the energy transition than I am on the like more food biodiversity, more the nature-based stuff, because I think there the economic incentives just aren't as strong. I think in that in many of those scenarios, you are still having to make this longer term economic case where, you know, the costs of not doing the thing in the long term will be higher than the short term costs. But I think you are still relying a bit on that like long term thinking, which is quite different for many of the energy transition uh, changes we see where there's just the short term also this lines up with the long term. Um, I think I think on the the nature based stuff, there are some reasons for cautious hope there. That again, there are technologies getting there um, where again the short term economic trends would, would would line up. It's just that I think they're further behind the curve. Like a big part of the whole food food and, and nature based transition is, is mostly dietary change. Like a lot of it is some of it is agricultural productivity and crop yields and improving that. But like a big bar, part of that, and the only way we really solve this is through wide scale dietary change, which is much more difficult than changing energy sources. Um, and to me, it will really rely on there being really, really good and effective substitutes for me, basically. And I think the technologies in that are a bit further behind the curve, but I think there is reason to believe that in the next five to 10 years, they, they do get there. I mean, it's kind of ironic, isn't it? In a way, we've never been in a better place when it comes to the energy transition from a technological point of view uh, and the economics. Um, I remember very well working on renewables 20 years ago and I think the feed-in tariff was something like 50 cents per kilowatt hour. Um, yeah, unthinkable now where solar costs a, a tiny fraction of that. And actually in many countries, there's no subsidy needed. You know, solar already makes sense just because it's an economic option without any subsidy. But at the same time, there, there seems to be, uh, at least in the political space, some sort of backlash, almost like a culture war against net zero. I mean, we've seen that play out um, in in a number of countries uh, in Europe, but also, of course, in the US. Um, so that's to me that that you know, those two things together um, are hard to explain because um, actually we are in a much better place. Yet the politics are really heating up um, around this topic. Um, is it? I mean, is it perhaps that because of the success of some of the um, transition that we have seen? that this is actually causing some of the backlash almost, you know, because this becomes more visible, there's more debate about it. It becomes more um, a likely scenario that we're actually going to see that and that, that creates opposition. Um, but you, do you have any thoughts around, you know, the sort of optimism that I, I think we all share on the podcast, but also the, the backlash that we're seeing in, in, in politics against um, net zero, um, even though we're seeing you know, massive opportunities? Yeah, no, I agree with that assessment. I probably don't have like a really clear answer on why it's happening. I think there is actually, and what I've seen kind of anecdotally over the last year or two in particular, has been this uptick, often in misinformation around many of these technologies. And I think maybe, yeah, maybe part of it is actually due to the fact that 
um, the other side are actually now seeing a threat um, and they are actually having to really stump up efforts to try to to downplay it. Like, I mean, you see it very clearly in the uh, EV electric vehicle space where I actually think manufacturers and, and oil companies are feeling threatened by the rise of EVs that's coming and is already underway. And I think they are then, yes, you're going to see see a backlash where they will p- try to plant seeds of doubt that it can't be done or it's too expensive or we can't have the charging network. So there's an endless list of kind of misinformation. Um, and I think maybe part of it is because they do now feel threatened because they can see that, that things are moving and could potentially move pretty quickly. I know you track many clean energy indicators uh, across your work and, and in the book. Where do you see, where are we making good progress and where perhaps are we not making such good progress? We're making uh, good progress on electricity. Like that's the easiest sector really to decarbonize. Um, I mean, there are a couple of like really positive trends there. I mean, I think coal is like, if you look at the free fossil fuels, coal is the one that's going to die the soonest. Um, and I think there are other reasons for that. I think um, one is that I think in general people people kind of like oil and gas. They don't really like coal. They know it's a kind of dirty fuel. There's the local air pollution angle. I think coal will kind of be on its way out and could be on its way out pretty quickly. And again, you see just cheap renewables are just uh, just growing really quickly and continuing to to fall in cost. So I think we're making good um, progress there. Uh, and transport, we're making yeah, we're making relatively fast progress. I think the problem with transport is that I think it's going to take a while before you see. Ramez Nam always calls it, it distinguishes between leading indicators and lagging indicators. And I think the leading indicators on transport are really positive, like the falling costs of batteries, the falling costs of EVs, and the starting to see quite. A, quite a, a, a rapid increase in, in sales. I think the, the issue there is it will be a while before you see this coming through in the lagging indicators, which is basically the total stock of different cars and also the, the oil demand and oil displacement. But I think that's coming. It just needs to go much faster. I think one area, I mean, the UK, I'm in the UK and, you know, one area we're really not doing well is on heating. Like we're, we're, we're so far behind the curve. Like we're looking at, you know, to meet our targets, you know, in the next few years, we need to see like 10 X uh, increase in the rate. Not of, just of, in the UK, Hannah, this is, we, 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 I mean, okay. we discussed this on this podcast as well. It's, um, it's the same in so many other European countries yeah. and, and, and across the world. So um, we the UK isn't alone <laughs> in that, but I fully agree. Yeah. Yeah, no, I mean, yeah, the UK is the bottom of our bad pack. Then, um, yeah, we're we're quite close to the bottom of the table. Yeah, we just are not seeing the the rate of of rollout of heat pumps there. I, think, I mean, I think there are a couple of issues there. I think upfront cost is still still an issue, uh, even even with uh, government subsidies. And then I think also just a problem is just getting skilled workforce and being able to actually um, actually install heat pumps in an effective way such that you don't get bad scare stories in the media because someone got a, a poorly installed heat pump and now it's not working or not working as effectively as it should. So I think those are, that's, that's heating in particular is an area where we're, we've seen uh, not that much progress. May I come in? Because you just talked about someone in, you know, someone reporting oh, a bad experience with a heat pump. Because that's, I mean, these kinds of episodes is what we are confronted with, right? Um, and everywhere. 
I mean, that that's like the, the, the discussion. And um, I wanted to ask you what, what you feel could be the solution in order to, to counter this kind of climate misinformation. Um, I mean, do we need more our world in data? Um, we were internally here thinking that the European Commission should think about, you know, um, promoting people that can combat this kind of climate misinformation at a, you know, at a, in a structural way, even. What do you think about it, since you're the one who's at the front line, basically? What do you think about this idea? And is it feasible to do that? Hi, everyone. Just quickly dropping in to ask if you could like and share this podcast with your network, you'd be really helping us out. If you're a member, you can join the conversation below this podcast on our website or app. If you're not a member, what are you doing? Try us on a 30-day free trial by following the link in the show notes and join the conversation with a global community of energy professionals. Now, back to the show. Yeah, I think that's a good question. I think I think the challenge with trying to combat every single piece of misinformation is you would never be able to keep track. I think I think if you try to massively increase, you know, combatants against individual pieces of misinformation, just efforts would go further on the other side. So you'd never you'd always be losing the race. I think what's been shown to be more effective is less rather than specifically targeting individual pieces of misinformation is to just put out good information and put out good trusted information um, so that when people are looking or searching on this topic, they find a really good, clear explanation that's well backed up, that's well referenced, is understandable. And I think that's probably your best bet at success rather than trying to target individual pieces of misinformation. I think there's two ways to target this. One is just putting out good information, good data, um, and I think, I think, I think many people would say, you know, people aren't convinced by data. I'm like, I mean, I should be skeptical of that. I think some people, you, there's no amount of data you could throw at them that would convince them otherwise. So they're so staunchly in their particular view. But I think there's lots of people in the middle where they don't have a strong opinion. They don't really know, like, how does a heat pump work? What, how effective is it? And I think are quite open to just like well-informed discussion and information on it. Um, so one is just putting out good data. I think there's also just a really good case for uh, like sharing positive stories. Like I think there's often this question of like individual action and what can individuals do. And I think there's like the personal put footprint component of that. But if we are to build trust in EVs or heat pumps, then I think just talking to people, pos if you've had a positive experience about it, actually probably goes a long way. Um, and you could see this at a very local level where, you know, someone in your neighborhood gets a heat pump and they share with their neighbors and they discuss it and then they feel more convinced that that would be a good idea. So I think there's also these kind of peer-to-peer -peer effects of sharing good stories and positive stories. Yeah, I think that's such an important point because the effort you put into dismantling misinformation yeah, it's it's so much larger than you've what the what the time people spend to just spout some nonsense on Twitter yeah it it, it takes them no time at all because there's no research behind it but if you then have to painstakingly sort of try to find evidence to debunk something that is clearly false um yeah that's not a very good use of time there's actually a, a law i think it's called uh, brandolini's law uh, or the bullshit asymmetry principle um which uh, i think says that it takes um, much more effort to debunk misinformation than compared to the relative ease of creating it in the first place and i think that's uh, that's partly being used i think by people who just want to stop 
you know, parts of the transition putting out nonsense. And then people um, like ourselves are being tasked to debunk that. Um, and we're, we're distracted and we can't really focus on, you know, the, the positive aspects. So I think you made a made a really important point there, um, Hannah. And I guess in part, that's kind of what you tell through the book as well is, you know, some of the, like change is possible. It's not just all bleak and nothing happens, nothing ever changes. Uh, and what, what sort of, I mean, what sort of responses have you gotten so far from people um, who read the book? I mean, you mentioned the the one one star review uh, comparing you to Bjorn Lombok, uh, which clearly is 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 not accurate. Um, but what what else have you? I mean, you've you've talked to a bunch of people. I think you had had an interview with by Bill Gates even the other day. Uh, so it, it caused quite a, a bit of a stir, hasn't it? Um, uh, globally, um, and I guess you had both negative and positive. But what what sort of responses have you received so far? And uh, and were they what you were hoping for? Yeah, no, I'd say like overall the the reception has been really positive. I think it's easy to focus on like the 5% negative uh, when, and not for, and forget about the, the 95% positive. Most people have been really, really positive about it. Like it's been, I mean, obviously it's been like reviewed by Bill Gates and other, other big figures. So that's been really nice. But I think it's really nice just hearing from regular readers that have read it and like feel inspired now to take action. Like they either... Um, some of them have actually said they're like changing careers to go into more climate stuff. Um, people were like making more like individual changes. Like I, I've heard from quite a lot of parents who have like young adults as kids, and they, I think, I feel like they are kind of stuck in the position I was in maybe like ten or fifteen years ago, where um, I felt kind of helpless that we would be able to to tackle these problems. I felt I felt kind of helpless that I would actually have a future um going forward and i think i think they 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 seem to be quite grateful that they have a different way of speaking to the uh their their kids about about these challenges um but yeah of course there's going to be negatives and the negatives have been like from both sides so like one i'm like a climate hoaxer because i'm saying the climate change is really serious um and then there's like the other extreme where it seems to be like if you don't say that you know we're facing the absolute apocalypse and there's nothing we can do about it then you're like undermining the issue so you do have those two kind of extremes and they generally don't like the book um but as i say there's a big group in the middle that are engaged in these issues and actually want to focus on on solutions so yeah i've been i've been really happy with the response you touched on it a little bit there about people that have read the book changing their ways of life uh, and changing their jobs or changing their their habits how important are the consumers in this and obviously a lot of the uh a lot of the noise you hear about people that are perhaps a bit more um, cynical about the transition is that, oh, what change can, what difference can I make? I can, you know, I'm only one person. I, I, yeah, sure, I can eat less meat, but then what difference is that going to make? What do you, what's your response to that? And, and how important are the consumers and the end users in, in really driving that change in the transition and uh, to a more sustainable future across the board? I do think individual change is important. I think we too often completely separate like individual change from more like systemic governmental market change and assume that it's either one or the other. And actually I think both both are important. I think one one dimension to the individual ch- behavior change is just, you know, reducing your carbon footprint. And I think that's that's valid and important. I think the second one is this peer effect where I actually think you can have this effect on other people around you by changing behaviors. I think one thing that's really crucial there is that I this doesn't work if you preach to people or tell them what they have to do. I think they tend to pick up on it by seeing what you're doing. And if you are talking about it positively, they get curious and they get intrigued and they also join in. 
And then I think I think just a really crucial part of individual behaviour changes is the signal you send to governments and markets. Um, I, I think this is especially true in richer countries where we have richer consumers. And as we talked about earlier, the technologies that are crucial to this, they tend to start out expensive and the way they fall in price is by deploying them. Um, and that I think actually rich consumers do have a responsibility there to implement when they're maybe a bit more expensive and it pulls down the cost for others. Um, I think from a governmental perspective, I think we should expect stronger policy decisions from our governments, but they're only going to make that if they think that's what the public wants. They're not going to push really hard on EVs if no one's buying EVs. They're not going to push for charging infrastructure for EVs if no one's buying EVs. So I think these personal decisions do actually matter uh, at a personal level, but also the signal you send to governments and markets. So I think the separation of it's either the individual or it's systemic change. I think those aren't as separate as many people make out. Um, and do you think, therefore, that the data that we're collecting uh, and the data that you're putting out there in, in the book and in your work, in your day job, is it being used widely enough? Are people basing their decisions enough on their data? And is the tr- perhaps the transparency and an- analytics of that data being used effectively? I mean, I would always say I wish more people were were using the data to make better decisions. I mean, there's definitely some. And I'll say, like, I've actually been surprised by people that have, like, specifically said I changed my behavior on Mm. X because I saw your article on our own data on this like I see this a lot in food where people actually made like really dramatic shifts in diets because of articles we've done on the environmental impacts of food Mm. or animal welfare impacts of food Um, so yeah I think some people do make changes based on data I think there's this again I think there's this like macro level effect which is more about shaping broader discussions on this. So if journalists are using our work if policymakers are then using our work there's this like higher level shift in the conversation and the narrative which is arguably more important than individual people just seeing that and making a, a change in their in their own life. Can we quickly one talk um for one round about the data that is not there. Um I'm asking this because I, I, I worked um, the past months a lot on methane, you know, and how we don't know exactly how to verify and monitor abroad, etc. So what is the data you would love to show, but you don't have, you know, <laughs> or how big is the evidence gap in some areas? That would be very useful to know as well, I think. I mean, in some, I think actually on kind of energy climate, like the data quality and the the transparency of the data is actually better than in our other areas. Like I'd say like our understanding of some health measures or poverty, you know, for some, many regions of the world, you know, it's just a black box. Like you just really don't know what's going on there. Um, I think, I think the quality of the data on energy and climate stuff is better, but, but by no means perfect. I actually think there's an interesting contrast with some of the energy climate stuff to the other areas of our work where a big kind of overarching, I guess, feature or or kind of hypothesis of our own data is is looking at the long-term trends on many of these measures to see how the world's changed. So like stuff like child mortality or extreme poverty, like the the whole point of that is that these this stuff never reaches the news headlines because it happens day after day, year after year. There's never like a, a snap moment where there's a big event and, and and you see a dramatic change. It tends to be these gradual but really significant changes from year to year. And therefore 
for many of our metrics, you know, going from one year to the next, you kind of know what it's going to do. Like it's going to go up a little bit or down a little bit. And actually, if you missed a year of the data, it wouldn't be that significant. You could probably ex- ex- kind of interpret what the trend would be. Um, so it's more about these slow changes. I think what's different now about the energy stuff is this stuff is moving quickly. If you're a year or two out of date on this, you're really, really out of date and you don't know what's going on. So I actually think the pace of uh, by which we need the data on this stuff is much faster than for our other measures. I think some of the challenges there is that all of our work relies on data being open access. Like it needs to be shared and, and people can download it and use it. And a lot of stuff on the energy space is, is private data. It's, it's company data um, or even the International Energy Agency, like a lot of their data is private uh, and you can't share that. So I think that's one of the key barriers for us on this energy space is that the data is private and not widely shareable. And therefore, you know, we might be a year or two behind in our data updates, which makes a massive difference to your understanding of this problem. Yeah, I mean, we have this the same problem um, with with data on the building sector. Um, you, know, he, he, you mentioned heat pumps before. There's not even a, a good data source at global level that really tracks this uh, consistently and with lots of granularity. Yes, the IEA does collect this data, but you know, once you want more detail, you're quickly finding that you're struggling because the data isn't reported uh, consistently and there's lots of gaps. Um, so there's certainly more that can be done. Um, but in terms of what you, what, what, yeah, what's next for you, Hannah? I mean, you've written this book now. You you have award and data, which of course gets updated. You know, that's great. You might add some further data sets to it. Um, you know, make it better. Um, uh, but do you have another sort of big, big thing coming? Um, yeah, after after the book and and after having established our world in data, is there is there something you can tell us already, or are you still sort of thinking about what what would be the next big thing you could do? No, like I'm doing, I'm still doing like a ton of work on our own data and we've got like some exciting projects this year. I'm actually writing another book and that's like the new project that I'm I'm starting on now. And it's actually specifically trying to target misinformation in the climate energy space. And by misinformation, I don't mean is the world warming and are humans responsible? It's more about these like on the solutions side where I actually do see the misinformation not stopping the transition, but slowing us down. And I think that the bit, that's the last thing we need. So it's, yeah, the target, the book is going to be specifically targeted at these misconceptions, these myths, and what does the data and research show us? And it needs to be like really snap, like really, really short bites. Um, so it's trying to condense these kind of unwieldy um, topics into like really sharp uh, sound bites so that people can understand this is the myth, this is what the data actually shows us. Well, I hope you included chapter on heat pumps in there because yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we still seem to be getting a stream of misinformation on that. For sure, EVs yeah. will be included and, and renewables, uh, no doubt. Uh, but that's a great, I, um, great project. Yeah. I was right. I was working on the one of the heat pump chapters yesterday, and I was <laughs> I was using your study on the the efficiency at different temperatures. So that's definitely excellent. Excellent. Great. Great to hear that. Well, I guess in a, in a couple of years or so, your book might be on the shelves, depending on how quickly you write it and how quickly it takes to get published. But that that sounds like an exciting and much needed um, new new project, indeed. But you will stay on our world in data that you also confirmed that that makes me also very excited because <laughs> I think we need that more. It's amazing um, to, to have this done. Uh, you know, I'm really I mean, you're so young and you've already done all these amazing things. Uh, yeah. Going out, showing the data. It's such a 
meaningful thing to do, I have to say. Building on that uh, point, Michaela, how uh, encouraged are you by uh, perhaps the current generation, but also the new generation entering perhaps the workforce today and then the next five years that they can build a sustainable planet? Yeah, a lot, like really optimistic. I think I think that's part of the other part of why I'm so optimistic is that I think there's just like a bunch of really smart, dedicated people coming through that want to make positive difference. I think there has probably has been a shift also in like how people view work over the generations where I think like just a key part of why people choose a career or a given path is because they want to make a positive difference. And it's not that like people in the past didn't make that choice but I think it's becoming more of that like people don't just want a job anymore they want a way to positively contribute to the world I guess that's part of the hope with the book is for young people reading it is to to see that these are massive problems but also see that there are solutions there and they can be part of the solution and and driving it forward. Maybe that builds on to our final question uh, then if you could look into your crystal ball uh, what does the energy transition and the energy landscape look like in 10 to 20 years time? Oh, I mean, 10 to 20 years time, I think many countries will have fully decarbonized their electricity systems. If they're meeting their targets, they should definitely have done that by now. Um, I think there are other countries where, like China, for example, I think China's coal use will be way lower than it is today. I think it will actually have made massive strides in decarbonizing its electricity system. I think for kind of other mid to low income countries, I think we could still see a period where fossil fuels there are still growing um, just because energy, alleviating energy poverty is the priority. Um, but I think I think by t- t- 10 to 20 years, again, that will have tipped. And I think, again, they will probably have reached peak peak um, peak emissions in, in the power sector and will be, again, decarbonizing and that will be declining. On transport, um, I think actually in most countries in the world, you won't be able to buy a new petrol and diesel car. I think mo- nearly all new sales will be electric and they'll just be the, the filtering through of that into the total transport stock. And and hopefully we'll be well past peak transport emissions. Um, heating, I mean, I, I don't want to make any <laughs> predictions about heating. I mean, 10 to 20 years, we should be making strides. I still think we'll be far behind the curve, but I think we will be making significant progress. And industry? Industry, uh, industry I think I think in the next five to ten years, I think there are a bunch of innovations there that will start to come through and start to make it into the market. Like I think cement, steel, I think we will actually be making progress there. Um, and I think a lot of the, the gap in decarbonizing those sectors will, will start to be bridged. I mean, aviation, I have no idea. <laughs> <laughs> aviation and shipping are yeah. tough. Hannah, thank you so much for joining us uh, today. Before we go, uh, I'd just like to go around the table uh, and see what caught our eye this week. Jan, what caught your eye? Um, well, it, it has to be um, Nat Bullard's um, uh, decarbonization 2024 slide deck. I'm sorry if you wanted to say the <laughs> same, uh, fellow panelists and, and Hannah, um, but that's at this time of year always a highlight. Um, uh, yeah, it's it's a it's a great slide deck. If you haven't seen it, we put it in the show notes of the key decarbonization trends that Net Bullard analyzes every single year. Hannah? I was going to say Nat Bullard's slide deck. Uh-huh. I actually put out a subset today, and I also linked it at the end because it's just so good. Um, if you come back around to me, I need to think of another one. 
We can have the same. I think that's completely yeah. acceptable. We can have two nominees for the same slide deck. It was so, it is just so good. And he just put so much effort into it. So I think everyone, I mean, everyone listening to this podcast will be interested in it. Uh, so it's like very much recommended. Uh, Michaela? Um, I've been reading a lot about the um, discussions here in, the, in Brussels on uh, solar manufacturing in the EU. Was some coverage in the FT and Politico, and apparently today the Commission has to come out with some emergency ideas to um, to address the threat at the moment to the EU-based manufacturing. And what I find interesting about it is um, the the sector in itself is divided about you know like how, how do we reconcile that we need to scale up fast with protecting and that i also saw that at least we have learned the lesson of 10 years ago where we tried to address it really only with trade defense measures which didn't work so well and i see the discussion has been a bit broadened and we look at really the entire value chain and we look at you know the bigger issue of cost competitiveness and what could be done so i'm curious what comes out of that but that's a little bit here at the moment because we had also um, we had the, the positive about the solar cost decline, but um, at the moment there's also a negative that the EU policies are are dealing with. Absolutely, um, we've done a, a deep dive on the cost of solar um, on Foresight Climate and Energy, uh, which you'll be able to read online and listen to on our new website and app. A uh, little plug there uh, for me. Uh, my uh, what caught my eye was um, uh, a video on BBC News uh, in its Instagram account with the the first wireless electric road in the United States, uh, which can charge electric cars as they drive on it. Um, It's a quarter mile section of road in Detroit, uh, which creates an electromagnetic field to transfer energy into the uh, electric car, a bit like a wireless charger for your mobile phone. Um, Obviously, you need to have the right car for its charge, uh, and it's very expensive, uh, and it's only a quarter of a mile uh, section. But interesting, nonetheless, um, whether that takes off or not, and we see more of that. Uh, around the world how long was that seen. section you said like one mile uh, quarter, quarter of a mile quarter of so, okay yeah quarter of a mile so what's that 400 meters if that um yeah not very long but still interesting Sadly, that's all we have time for today. My thanks to Hannah, Michaela, Jan for joining us today, as well as our producer, Kira, and our audio editor, Robert. If you have any questions for the team or wish to add to the conversation, why not join us on our new Foresight website and app? Visit foresightmedia.com or follow the link in the show notes to get a one-month free trial with full access to the site and let us know what you're optimistic about. Thanks for joining us for our 50th episode, and we hope you'll join us for the next 50. We'll see you again soon. Thank you.